Due to harsh language and violent content, listener discretion is advised. The podcast which you are about to hear is an account of the horror suffered by a group of three adults, Stuart, Arnie, and Brock. Though they had experienced horror before, had they lived very, very long lives they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and the macabre as they were to see with this retrospective series. For them, a movie review podcast became a symphony of terror. The events of this viewing were to lead to one of the most bizarre podcasts in the annals of Internet history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Retrospective Series. Today we're discussing Leatherface, starring Stephen Dorff with Lily Taylor and nobody else you've ever fucking heard of. <laughs> Directed by Julian Mari and Alexandra Bostillo. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and this shit's about to get fun. This is Stuart. And this is Brock, with his chainsaw at the ready. But whose face are you wearing today? I'm wearing Jerry's face. Sorry, Jerry. It puts a totally new spin on who are you wearing. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of being fashionable, is it fashionably late to take five years for your follow-up? I can't believe it, but it has almost been that long since we were in a theater with 3D glasses on talking about this franchise. And now shelved and released direct tv exclusive that's quite a come down and i can't believe when i was researching this film they kept talking about the hit film texas chainsaw 3d i thought that thing came out in january and was quickly forgotten i know i gave it a week pass i found some stuff to enjoy i mean i'm comparing it to its siblings here you know it's the texas chainsaw series but That thing doubled its budget. They fast-tracked a sequel and had it done two years after the fact. This thing has been sitting on a shelf since 2015. Do we know exactly why, though? Because if it was such a big hit, and it was honestly a modest hit, and I sort of liked parts of it, if we all recall, I was thinking if they keep this momentum going, they actually might have something, but it took forever for this thing to come out. It sounded like a falling out. No one is publicly talking, but John Lussenhop, who directed the last one, was working on a script. They had locations picked out. It made enough money that somebody had money for it, and then that project wasn't happening, and John Lussenhop is now directing a movie that combines speedboat racing and drug cartels and John Travolta called Cigarette. Good luck with that. Not going to watch it. So that director and creative force stepped away and they went with a new guy who had an entirely new take. What they thought was good about Seth Sherwood was not that he had written London is Falling, but that he had a concept and a way at coming at this story that nobody else had in seven previous movies. Dallas is Falling. I get it. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, why not Toby Hooper? It's worth saying he is here in the credits. He's given a executive producer credit. He was still alive. He died two months ago, but was alive to have made this in 2015 when it was shot in Romania. He was still directing. He made this movie called Jajen. It's the first horror movie, Haunted House in United Arab Emirates. He directed it in Arabic, even. I didn't know he spoke Arabic. I don't think he did. It didn't look like a very good movie. It didn't look like he knew what he was doing. But I've always kind of made the case that maybe he didn't. You know, I did he do such a great job with Poltergeist and Life Force, Invaders from Mars? He is a dubious master of horror. But I do think from a marketing standpoint, you're eight films now into a series. You want to be able to say something fresh, right? From the guy that brought you the original, I would think would be a good marketing tool. I think so. When I'm looking at Texas Chainsaw and coming back to it so many years after we did the series, growing up, when I was getting into horror, before there was Chucky, before there was Pinhead, the ones I knew of were Jason, Freddy, and Leatherface. And those seemed to be like the Beatles of horror. And when I started getting like movie maniacs figures, I got Jason, Freddy, and Leatherface and all of that. But I got thinking about Leatherface and all of these myriad of sequels, and how many do I really like, and how much have they done? And I'm going to just ask, other than Children of the Corn, has there been a series where the sequels suck so hard? No. That's kind of subjective, but no. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, though, if my problem with this series, Arnie, is that I watched all these series for the first time with you guys, and I know Jason, I know Freddy, I know Chucky, but I still don't know a darn thing about Leatherface besides he runs around with a chainsaw. That's such a blank, boring character. Even Michael Myers, they try to do something with, and the sister angle kind of works a little bit, but honestly, I feel like this is such a boring character because all he does is just run around and it's all gory. Everyone around him has more personality than the actual quote-unquote star of this series, Leatherface. Yeah, and that was always what I was saying. If you go back and listen to the old shows, I was always the one advocating, when they make the next one, why don't they focus on him? Well, they've done that. This is an origin story for Leatherface. Didn't we have that already? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Can we just walk through the series very briefly? Because I realized coming back after so much time and not having watched any of the films or even having a desire to go back and catch up with them to prepare for this review. I just want to see what we can recollect about the seven movies that have come prior. All right, so the original one, we'll presume it was set in the year that it came out, 1974 in rural Texas. I remember quite a bit about that one. I mean, I've seen it many times. I still find it not exactly an enjoyable experience. However, looking back on this series... Perhaps I should flip that arrow again just when (laughs) comparing it to all of the derivatives that came after. I could tell you just about everything about it, from the hitchhiker to the fact that it's an anti-meat statement to the one guy we really hated and were so glad when he got chopped up. What I remember from the first movie was how beautifully it was filmed and how it was very washed out and all these really kind of cool cinematic choices that have been largely missing from the rest of the series, the technical filmmaking that was in that first movie. Yeah, Sally Hardesty and her three hippie friends are trying to find the grave of her grandfather, and they come across the Sawyer family, who includes the cross-dressing Leatherface, not given that name, that came 
afterwards by marketers and people watching the movie. But there's a Leatherface, there's a grandpa, and there's this nameless hitchhiker prone to self-injury, and a gas station attendant who we thought was not part of the family, but surprise, ended up being in on it. And that was the clan. And then in the sequel, which jumps ahead, the only time I think that it leaves that community, they go to Dallas for a chili cook-off, and now we have the hitchhiker's now named Chop Top. He's played by Bill Mosley. The gas station attendant is called Drayton. He's a chili cook. Actually, the hitchhiker was Nubbins. Nubbins was dead. Chop Top was another brother. Oh, you're right. They had his corpse. That's yes. right. Oh, okay. And they were facing off against a Dennis Hopper uncle of Sally. They didn't bring Sally back. They had some female radio DJ, but Sally's uncle was there, and he was a Texas Ranger, and really just as crazy as they were. Doesn't this one open up with a convertible? Yes, the car chase. That's what I remember is the car chase. I remember really liking Bill Mosley in it. I just watched for, as part of our Death Wish retrospective that film on Canon Films, and I got to re-see some scenes and remember they ran out of money at the end, and the entire ending is like, wait, what the fuck just happened? And I had to like watch it twice to see Dennis Hopper die. Not a great follow-up, but the only one that comes from its director, Toby Hooper, and it was funny. It's a cult favorite. Next, we got... The first Leatherface, there are two films in this franchise called Leatherface. Pissing me off. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 Leatherface introduces entirely new Sawyer family members, including Vigo Mortensen's Tex. And I can't tell, it just feels like a retread of the first one. I can't even remember anyone involved with it other than Vigo Mortensen. Starts out seeming like the sexy drifter and ends up being part of the clan that keeps the woman there. I remember thinking it was slow, but... Vigo made it pretty interesting. Part four, next generation. I could recite the entire plot for you. I love that film in a Halloween 3 kind of way. You do. Again, but they're changing the character. I mean, I'm just trying to find consistency. New Sawyer family members. Vilmer is Matthew McConaughey, and what they've done to Leatherface is complete camp. They basically just throw out any idea of horror and just go for comedy. The remote control leg brace is absolutely my favorite part of that movie. And I think what you're drilling home here, Stuart, or chainsawing home as the case may be, is the family doesn't matter. All you remember is Leatherface, and because he doesn't talk, you have some crazies around Leatherface. Right. But whether it's Chop Top or Nubbins or Grandpa, whoever it is, you just surround him with some crazies and you got a cross-dresser in human skin with a chainsaw. Right. Platinum Dunes proves that because they changed the name. It became the Kewitts, and they threw out the idea of the Sawyers, but they did bring up the name Jedediah, which is now going to be continued in this film, mm -hmm. even though it's Jedediah Sawyer in this film. In the Platinum Dunes remake, it was Jedediah Hewitt, but largely a repeat, but they gave the origin of him wearing the mask being that he was disfigured. He had some disease that made him ugly, and so he hid his face. His nose is deteriorating or something. Yeah. yeah. Still, the best one of the entire Texas Chainsaw franchise is that Platinum Dunes first film, and perhaps the best Platinum Dunes film ever, too. It's like the nexus of things that shouldn't be good but are. I rewatch <laughs> that one regularly. I do feel like it is the one most eager to entertain. If you're looking for the one that is the least gross and the most crowd-pleasing, yeah, it's going to be the Jessica Biel one. And then they made an origin story for that universe 
called The Beginning, which I stood alone kind of half endorsing as, oh, it's a knock on the Bush families. I saw the political jabs they took. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. They set it in a wartime and they put it in an area where the Bushes live. And, you know, they had little allusions to Bush's war in Iraq that made it, you can't call it great satire, but it gave it enough for me to give it a green arrow. I remember going into that one so excited because I liked the first one. I was happy R. Lee Ermey was coming back. I remember how they decided that they were going hungry, so that's what led them to cannibalism. I remember extreme disappointment, but now I want the Texas Chainsaw Massacre making fun of Trump and Leatherface wearing a wig. (laughs) Yeah, does he go to New York? But here's the thing. The stuff that they cover in that movie is different time periods than what we're going to see in this origin story. So it doesn't necessarily rule it out of continuity that we have a new origin story. This movie is going to show us 1955. Well, we saw Leatherface being born on the slaughterhouse floor in 1950, but we didn't know about his fifth birthday. And then the movie jumped to the Vietnam era, 1969, and this movie we're here to talk about today covers things that happened before that. But this could not work with that one because of the mental issues and everything. I did read where Seth Sherwood, writer of this one, said what he was looking to keep in continuity for this film were only two other films, really. The original Texas Chainsaw, and then made by Millennium and Lionsgate, Texas Chainsaw 3D. From this film to Toby Hooper's original to do your thing because is the through line with a couple of cherry-picked ideas from part two. Yeah, because 3D tried to be that direct sequel. It actually went back in time and said that after Sally got away cackling in the pickup truck, she told the authorities they came and crashed the Sawyers. There was a shootout and some baby was smuggled away and grew up to be Heather. And then Heather came home, met her cuz, and they became Heatherface. You know, you know, like Brangelina is like, now we're going to be a couple and we're going to just kill each other. By the way, we predicted Alexandra Daddario would be the next Renee Zellweger. I've never seen her again. Yeah. <laughs> we put a curse on her. Apparently she was in that recent Baywatch spoof remake. Oh, I saw that and didn't even remember. I did. I looked her up. I have seen her in other stuff because I'm always like, where do I know that actress from? And... Do Your Thing Cuz has become kind of a joke around Mm. my house. Yeah, it's a joke. She was in San Andreas playing The Rock's daughter. Oh. Who has to be rescued in the earthquakes. So she only does Dwayne Johnson movies. Got it. She was in Baywatch. She was in Percy Jackson. She was in Hall Pass. I look this actress up every once in a while and then end up saying Do Your Thing Cuz and then forgetting who she is again. I thought it it kind of is weird to me. They're pretty much ignoring everything else in the middle, which is kind of the way to go, but it still is odd that they're kind of jumping to just two movies with continuity. They're precedent setting. John Carpenter's doing that exact same thing with Halloween next year. And then they did that with Superman Returns as well, trying to follow up the first two Superman movies and ignoring three and four. How dare they retcon out Nuclear Man? (laughs) I agree with you. That's just an atrocity. (laughs) (laughs) The idea is not new, but it's just strange here. But of all the series to do that, this is the one because we still don't know a darn thing about Leatherface. And there's still a wide open slate that we can learn about a character that we supposedly are supposed to know now for, what, 40 years. 
When I watched this movie, I did have Marjorie with me because she's seen most of these Texas Chainsaw films. And I'm like, let's watch this one. It's Halloween time. I love watching any horror film around Halloween time. We started watching and she's like, wait a second, aren't their last names Hewitt, not Sawyer? And I said, this movie, I didn't even look it up. I said, I thought this movie, and I said to her, this movie is going under the assumption you only remember the first and you never saw the sequels. And if you're lucky, that's actually true. Right. Yes, because there's not a lot of love for what's in between. Why don't we just try to get back to the vibe of the original? And can we still get money out of this thing? So who are they going to? They didn't get Toby Hooper. They didn't get John Lussenhop. I was actually surprised. I didn't know them by name, but I know them by reputation. Alexandra Bastillo and Julian Mari had a big hit 10 years ago as part of the French new wave of horror films that was coming out. Every now and then, it seems like a region of the world explodes. In the early 2000s, Japan and all of that Ringu stuff was hitting. After that, it moved to France, and there were all of these films that were bloody and very stylish. You know, the French have a great way of being repulsive and beautiful at the same time. Gaspar Noé's Irreversible is one that I think a lot about. Alexander Aja's High Tension was a big hit. In My Skin, I'll Never Forget. The only one that we've ever covered is when they remade Maniac with Elijah Wood. We saw that one. And you can see what I'm talking about. That French style that kind of elevates the pornographic feel of the slasher. Love that film. Still one of my favorite horror films we've covered for all of Now Playing. I just go back to that one. I listen to its score a lot. Well, Bastille and Mari, their big hit was something called Inside, and it was one that I heard about for years. They didn't show it here. It eventually got released by Dimension in an uncut form much later, but it's a home invasion movie in which a pregnant woman on Christmas Eve is being terrorized by a crazy immigrant who wants to cut her baby out with sewing needles, and so it has a lot of metaphorical possibilities. I think it got overpraised, frankly, because you could look at it as part of the abortion debate, or I think more accurately, you could look at it as a story about immigration, the inside, being afraid of the outside, and playing with that with the unborn child. It had some cool ideas. It was certainly stylish. It was very, very bloody. I didn't love it, but I thought that they would have a bigger career. I thought that they would go on to do things, and honestly, they kind of fell off the map, and this was the first time I had heard of them since that movie 10 years ago. Never heard of them. Never even knew France had a horror explosion. Yeah. I haven't heard of most people involved in this film, truthfully. it's <laughs> It really feels like the lowest rent of sequels. And I came into this film with exceedingly low expectations. The fact that it was shelved for years, never a sign of confidence, looking at you, Hellraiser 10, and then also... That I've not heard of anyone involved except for two actors who used to have careers. Stephen Dorff, the last thing I saw you on, I was sent a promo screener of Officer Down. I did a review for the Gazette. I actually liked it. But your career has gone downhill since Blade. Maybe you're trying to ice skate uphill and it's not working. Then the release of this movie, as you mentioned, Stuart, we were wondering, would it even come out? I mean, the idea of marketing is foreign to whoever's doing this film because... If it wasn't for Stuart and now playing, I would have no clue this film came out. I mean, I'm still reading Bloody Disgusting and all of the websites that have replaced Fangoria, and it's gotten so little coverage, so little notice, and it was 
birthed onto DirecTV a month ago, where you had to A, have DirecTV, which a lot mm-hmm. of people have, but I have Comcast, and B, you then have to rent it for $12 on top of DirecTV. It wasn't like a gift to DirecTV <laughs> people. Wow. $12 seems steep for any movie, let alone a sequel no one really wants to watch. Well, I'm noticing the higher pricing for the in lieu of theaters experience or same day as theaters or certain movies that come out on digital before theaters. I think I paid 25 bucks to rent some movie or other because it was actually on iTunes before it hit theaters. They're not doing this with you know, Thor or any movie they actually think is going to make a ton of money. Yet. Yet. It is becoming more and more. I mean, we're now down to about eight weeks from theatrical debut to availability for purchase at 15 bucks on digital. So day and date digital is coming, but that price didn't shock me for this. I remember, I think it was Human Centipede 2 or something. I had to pay like 16 bucks to rent. And yes, it sounds steep if you're like me and you see these things by yourself. But if you have a bunch of friends, that's way cheaper than everyone paying $8, $10 a ticket to see something in a movie theater. Even just Marjorie and I, when we go to a movie, if we see it after hours, it's $20, you know, for Mm -hmm. two tickets. And if I buy the movie on iTunes before it's available for rent, it's $15. And so I find myself with a whole bunch of shit in my iTunes library, like life, that I'm never going to watch again, but it's always going to remind me I own. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, there was reasons for me once I saw who was behind it to be excited, but the presentation and the lack of fanfare from the genre web enthusiasts, no one I don't think can really review this movie because they can't see it. But it did get, I noticed in major theaters, there was this weekend that screened it. So maybe you're one of the people that got to go. I did not. I did watch it online. Yeah, it finally, we weren't even sure Thursday night. I mean, this was scheduled for our Tuesday release. Thursday night, Stuart and I and Jacob are recording Hellraiser. Like, is Texas Chainsaw really coming out tonight? (laughs) And it did not available for purchase, strangely. So it will not be sitting in my iTunes library forever. A $7 rental, though. Yeah. Well, why don't we start talking about the plot summary, and then we'll get into the film. Well, the film starts in 1955, where the psychotic, incestuous Sawyer family, led by matriarch Verna, played by Lily Taylor, live alone, trapping and killing people for fun. But they go a step too far when they kill the daughter of Sheriff Hal Hartman, played by Stephen Dorff. As retribution, Hartman has all of Verna's minor children rounded up and put in the state-run Gorman house to protect them from their family. Of note is taken young Jeb Sawyer, who we know will grow up to be a chainsaw-wielding, skin-wearing psycho. We jump forward ten years, and Verna has married someone rich and is trying to see her son, but he lives in the Gorman house under an assumed name. We also meet the new Gorman House nurse, Lizzie White. On her first day at work, she makes friends with two of the teenage inmates, Charming Jackson and hulking, nearly mute Bud. Of course, with his long hair and his body build, we're to think Bud is Leatherface. That night, though, Verna sneaks into Gorman House to find her son, inadvertently causing a riot. Jackson helps Lizzie escape the hospital unharmed, But when they leave, they're both taken hostage by psychopathic couple Ike and Clarice. Leaving, they also pick up Bud, who, after killing the hospital administrator, is just wandering down the road. 
Jackson, Lizzie, and Bud are Ike and Clarice's hostages until they can make it to the Mexican border, and they drive south, killing many people along the way, chased by Sheriff Hartman and his cops. Ike spends much of the trip insulting Bud, and eventually the big boy has had enough and bashes Ike's head in. Clarice is captured and killed by Hartman, and Jackson, Bud, and Lizzie make a run for it. Jackson knows to hide from the homicidal cops, but Lizzie calls out to one for help. The cop responds by shooting at them, killing Bud. Jackson blames Lizzie for his best friend's death. Lizzie and Jackson then flee the cops in a stolen police cruiser, but they take fire and Jackson has a magic bullet that shoots him in both cheeks, tearing them apart and causing the car to crash. The two wake up and Lizzie is handcuffed in the Sawyer barn. Jackson is revealed to be Jeb, his face crudely sewn back together by his mama. They're chased there by Hartman, who is captured, in vengeance for his friend and his face, Jackson slash Jeb gets his chainsaw and kills Hartman, then he goes after Lizzie and decapitates her. He takes her face skin and makes it into his first mask to hide his new deformity, and starts to put on lipstick as credits roll. They never explain the cross-dressing! They explain everything else, but why lipstick? Well, he wants to look pretty. Yeah, I mean, she's a girl, and he put a girl's face on, and wants to make it look all pretty and made up. Made sense to me, already. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, this thing is... Whatever we're gonna say about it, lock solid with the plot, right? <laughs> Alright, I just need to ask. This entire movie, to me, feels like Seth Sherwood is sitting there saying, I want to remake Natural Born Killers, but I have the rights to make a Texas Chainsaw film. How can I merge them? Well, here's the funny thing. When I found out who had directed this movie, I went back and, and said, well, what did they make in that 10 years? And the movie that they made prior to this is called Among the Living. It was set in France, and it's surprisingly similar. It's a chase film in the French countryside, but with a monster that was born bad. It was a deformed child because his dad served in a war and was exposed to some noxious gas that made every child that he sired a mutant. And so I can see why they would say these guys would be right with the direction that they're going. They care about birth and family and heredity. And yeah, they know how to make things look good and make a chase film. What is exciting about this movie for me is that we're not stuck on the farm. We begin here and I'm worried at the prologue, but we will quickly move away from the claustrophobia of being trapped in the redneck barn and move on to what's a movie that moves across Texas, or at least Bulgaria, pretending to be Texas. Well, you're right about one thing, is they move from the farm, but then they go to the, the sane asylum, which I thought they were replacing one with the other. But you're right, once they get out of there and they go across the country, the movie does have possibilities. I will totally agree with you there. To get it out of a single situation, out of a single location, is a smart move for the series. But we start, just to orient everyone, because we would expect no less, to be in Texas, 1955, at that Sawyer farm, where we see somebody about to be killed. It's the fifth birthday of Jed. If we remember the remake, we know that Jed was Leatherface. I don't know if you know that otherwise. I mean, he is a small kid, scrawny, and he does not want to pick up the chainsaw. I thought it ironic, because... The one we'll know as the hitchhiker Nubbins with the big red mole on his face is an overweight kid here, and Leatherface is a thin kid here, which clued me in, and I was never fooled to thinking that Bud was Jeb. But not remembering that Leatherface's birth name was Jeb Sawyer didn't hurt me. When you see the Sawyer family giving a kid a chainsaw for his birthday, you don't need to have seen 
any previous Texas Chainsaw Massacre to know this kid's going to be Leatherface. That's what they're telling you by giving him the chainsaw. But yes, it's ironic. He wants to be good. He doesn't want to sew up this alleged pig thief. Right. And <laughs> did you guys see Captain Fantastic, the Viggo Mortensen movie when he's living in the country? Yeah. So for that Christmas, whatever they call Christmas, they give the kids knives and bows and arrows. But there, it's kind of innocuous because they're living in the wild and they have to kill animals and they're all excited about it. That jumped in my mind watching this movie. Yes, I understand that's really weird <laughs> that that movie jumped in my head. But to give a kid a chainsaw for his birthday in a movie called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it makes more sense. But this movie reminded me of the other movie in that, hey, this is kind of a trend in movies nowadays that you give kids implements to kill people or animals. There's even a book published, Dangerous Book for Boys, I think, where yeah, they're trying to restill in kids the love of, yeah, dangerous play, basically, is <laughs> what you're talking about. What's interesting for me about this setup is this may be the first one where I think, oh, we're actually going to focus on the killer. That's usually we have these innocents that stumble in here that no one cares about, and they're meant to be our stand-in, and then they're attacked by the rednecks. But here, by starting in this way, I think psychology. We might actually get to understand, get in the head of Leatherface. That was interesting to consider. I also thought it was interesting that Lily Taylor is just now trapped in horror movie schlock jail. <laughs> Poor girl. She used to be a very credible actress. And ever since The Haunting, she has just done more and more of The Conjuring. She was on that shitty Netflix show. I can't even remember what it was called. Hemlock Grove, I think. Yeah, I barely see her anymore and any indie cred she used to have back in the 80s and things. I mean, I think... Mystic Pizza and Say Anything. Yeah, Say Anything is the one I'll always love her for. All those songs about Joe. Right. Yes, absolutely. I like Dogfight. Have you guys seen that River Phoenix movie? That was great. And this is a reunion. One of her big indies was I Shot Andy Warhol. She played the real-life crazy woman who did shoot the artist Andy Warhol and palled around with a drag queen named Candy Darling in the film that was played by Stephen Dorff. So I guess this is them getting the band back together. And I have to say, they are easily the best actors in this film. Far and away, Lily Taylor drew me in this scene. When they reveal that there's the guy tied up, the hog farmer, and the way she yells at him, I thought that was played out brilliantly. That was a great way to open the movie, and I thought Lily Taylor really sold it. The mother's influence on this child, trying to put it on here, the family's philosophy and the way they are on this child. I thought she was great in this scene, and I loved how the scene played out as a great little prologue to the movie. I disagree that they're far and away the best actors in the film. I think maybe it's their affected accents, but both of them, I think, are playing to the level of the actors around them. Lily Taylor's voice, the way she was speaking, all I kept going back to was Rose, played by Sissy Spacek in David Lynch's A Straight Story, and I don't know where Dorf pulled this southern accent from, but I think he just watched a bunch of episodes of Hee Haw and decided to wing it. I like what they're doing here, and I kind of like this as a setup. They are being clever. Yeah, the idea that we start off with an innocent birthday party that becomes a first kill failed. This kid won't be able to do it, and that's, of course, the dramatic push of the entire film is when and if this Jed will grow up to be Leatherface. It's an interesting new way into this, and the idea of making the real monster the cop that's persecuting them, I think, is also telling. I don't know if you needed Betty, though. Could be enough that the cop just doesn't like the Sawyers, but they have to create this reason. And so we get this clumsy scene in which Betty and Ted stop and chase Jed from his hiding place. He's dressed up as a pig? 
but with a cow head? I thought it might be just a calf. I like the fact, though, kind of going back to the original, the cow head has that perfect hole in the forehead from when it was slaughtered, and we learned all about the gun they used to slaughter the cows from the hitchhiker in the first one. Yeah. So at least they're not wasting their meat, you know? I was a little bit upset because my understanding of Texas Chainsaw was they were cannibals. They didn't just kill for fun, you know, they were good hunters. They ate what they killed. Here, the way that they capture the sheriff's daughter in this pit, she's bleeding there, and then they drop an engine on her, that's not good for the engine or the steak. Yeah. <laughs> well, didn't, wasn't there human meat in the cake in the first prologue scene when they shove it in his mouth? Yes. The person that they have captured is someone that knows the secrets of their farm. And I think we see, at the very least, they're feeding their pigs human remains so people are eating animals that have eaten people and they may have also be dabbling in cannibalism at this time too it's not entirely clear <laughs> it's like werewolf bar mitzvah yeah. <laughs> pigs eating people people eating pigs yeah. <laughs> and this is where we start to have callbacks too this movie judiciously picks up key things about that original film and redoes them i remember praising the dolly shot in which the Sally character walks to the house. They restage that with Betty walking to this barn, finding the bones, and yeah, getting killed by Drayton. I'll give the movie this. The digital camera technology has given them the ability to do some nice shots in this film. I got sick of the sepia tone by midway through the movie. I wish they'd only used the sepia tone for the 55 stuff and maybe brought in a little bit more color for the 65 stuff, but... I like the camera angles. I like the use of light. It's one of the better looking Texas Chainsaw films. But again, I'm not going to necessarily credit the director so much as technology has made it easy for cheap films to look good. Yeah. Also, in this scene, to your point about you didn't like Stephen Dorff's performance here all that much. He's doing a poor man, Sean Penn from Mystic River. Is that my daughter in there? Yeah. It was really difficult not to think of Sean Penn. And that's something you don't want in a horror movie with Stephen Dwarf is to think about Sean Penn and how great he is in other movies. <laughs> but this scene was trying to evoke the moment where this man turned into a monster, made it a vendetta for the rest of the movie. And I thought this set up and the Lily Taylor against him in this scene, I think they wanted to be much more powerful. And I think it played much better because of these two actors against each other. But honestly, there's nothing new in this scene, but the way they played it worked. I really liked the setup here. Arnie, you knocked it. But I thought it worked for the setup again. The second setup scene in a row, I thought was working for this movie to give us something, which a lot of other slashers don't, a plot. Whether or not it's original, at least they're trying to do something here with plot and character work, and I'm going with it so far. It does give us a hook, and you do have actors that are well paired against one another that I feel like, okay, this is a battle. This feels like... The OK Corral, a Western, if you will. What's strange about it for me is it's taking it further away from horror. And we're going to get a movie where we spend so much time trying to guess who is Leatherface, when will he become Leatherface. There's no chainsaw. There's not a lot of the original sense of horror to it. The discovery. Indeed, it feels like clan battles or something, a gang war. But it does not feel like a horror movie franchise. You guys are right in that. Again, I said Natural Born Killers. This felt to me like an action film, not a horror film. They add a couple bits of gross-out moments for the horror, but... 
I also want to say I think this is always a danger for prequels about how much they want to find origins. It's great that we have an origin for Leatherface. I've always wanted that. I don't need this origin beef for the cops. And I definitely didn't need the fact that, and I got this from reading Wikipedia. I did not figure it out. But if you read Wikipedia, they spell it out for you. Becky was riding in the car with a guy named Ted Hardesty. Ted is Sally's father or brother from the original. So they're trying to create these dynastic, this is over the hundreds of years that we've had a Sawyer family, these family battles have been happening. Maybe that appeals to you. I think that that's overplaying your hand. A little bit. I also don't know that they got the period feeling right. (laughs) Sally's skirt is way too short. I mean, if you look at Greece, they thought they were risque at mid-calf. And while, again, they desaturated to look like an old photo nobody's talking or acting like they would the one thing that really got me is when hal hartman is threatening to kill the oldest sawyer boy he's like pulling the gun and like why don't i just kill you right here i honestly believe in 1955 in texas all the other deputies would have been like, yep let's shoot him i don't think they'd be like no think about your career (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of things that just feel... Modern. Yes. Modern, and they're trying to set it older, and they're doing a lot of modern tropes because it's modern movie making. Yes, I agree with you guys completely. I thought the girl, when she got out of the car, my note was, not only the skirt, Arnie, but look how thin she is. They took me out of it. The saturation of the color as well. And your guys are right. There's not suspense being built here. There's plot for a traditional kind of movie as opposed to horror movie suspense or don't go in there or anything else. But slasher films, sometimes they sacrifice suspense just for the cheap thrill and the cheap kill. They're going all over the place, I felt. But I did enjoy the fact that they're giving us some plot to a horror movie, which is, again, uh, something I'm always a fan of. You know, instead of just blatant stupidity, let's have a little bit of a plot. Yeah, and the other thing that's throwing me to, not only do I feel these anachronistic details that are taking me out, but once I read that it was filmed in Romania, it was really obvious. I'm like, all of this dialogue feels dubbed. All of these non-named actors, they all, you know, have a similar look to them. And it's because they've taken an Eastern European cast and completely redubbed them with Texas accents, and the lips don't always match up with the dialogue. My thing is that we're 10 minutes into the movie. We've had a birthday party, a murder, the kids being taken away. How can a movie drag in only 10 minutes? How can it get me instantly like, I think it's because there's no through line. We get these random scenes, these random killings, and I'm like, what is the point? It finally starts to coalesce for me when we jump ahead 10 years and we get to the Gorman house, which is this mental institution for kids. And because Hartman took away all the minors, he said round up all the minors, but I don't know where Nubbins went because Nubbins was clearly under 18 when he was jumping up and down at that birthday party. We never follow up on if Nubbins returned home. Instead, we get to see a nurse named Lizzie, who I assume will be our final girl. Yeah, you point out, Dorf makes the threat, you take one of mine, my Becky, I take all of yours. But the truth of the matter is, there is only one Sawyer in this reformatory. And it's a mystery. I like that about this movie, is that they're going to tease which one of them is the Sawyer kid. And I I guess wrong. I will say that I am with Lizzie, that when she enters here and gets the tour of the place, she's compelled to look at Bud. I was looking at Bud, too. It felt obvious. I read an interview 
maybe a year ago or something, where they were talking about how this kid was playing Leatherface, but they got me to think, because when I saw Nubbins was fat and Leatherface was thin at that birthday party, I'm like, did Jeb put on a whole bunch of weight at the Gorman house? It hit me right probably at the 20 minute mark, 25 minutes, Jackson is going to be Leatherface, and Bud here is going to be our red herring. And so I watched the film with that in mind. Sorry, Shyamalan, I caught you on this one. They had me, and then I started figuring it out. So I was going for the red herring because he looks so much like what we think Leatherface should look like, right? Yeah. And he looks like the guy from Lost. I I can't believe I fell for it, but then again, why wouldn't I? I didn't suspect it of being a smarter movie than it was, is the bottom line. We've seen this trick before. Look at Rob Zombie's Halloween, and that's a little kid that grew up to be the giant wrestler dude. So that's just the trope. We expect nothing more than, oh, let's look at all these bald white kids. Who's going to be the standout but the big portly guy with the long hair? He just plays to that stereotype. And the fact that Lizzie's talking to him first, Jackson just seems like a creep to me. He seems like a creepy river phoenix when he's coming in, repeating her name. But we do notice the alliance. He is awfully protective. He treats Bud like his brother, and that's because he can't remember anything about his family. I felt like this movie was in many ways a response to Zombies Halloween. The fact that we do have this mute hulking beast that does look like Michael Myers, that we're in a mental institution that he's been in since he was young and had that first murder. But yes, they do try to swap it at the end. Because, again, of the certain things they play at the beginning, they had me thinking it. Because they said the names were changed. Yeah, and there's one clue that if you freeze frame, you can actually catch it. Lizzie goes through files. She pulls up the one for Bud, and he has a last name. He's actually Bud Horton. So they do tell you if if you have the freeze frame or if you have the eye. They also say that he ha- is bipolar, a condition that did not have that terminology until 1980. So they're really off on diagnosing him. They're really far ahead by calling him bipolar in 1965. Maybe they came up with it themselves. Maybe they're the ones who created it. Yes. <laughs> and they won a Nobel Prize. Yeah, totally. Dr. Lang does seem like he is a genius, a mad scientist at least. He's got a, his whole like shock chamber. Here's the problem. If you're going to hide the killer from us for the whole movie, you have to create alternate bad guys, right? They're kind of working on that with Stephen Dorff as the Texas Ranger, but now that they're in the institution, he can't be the bad guy. They've got to create this Dr. Lang who likes to torture these orphan reformatory youths. And I'm not sure what exactly they're going for with this reformatory, because if it's a place where you take kids who are from broken homes or from homes that are not conducive to child rearing. You know, basically this is the 1950s, 60s version of DCFS. Why is it a mental institution? Is every kid that they take from a bad home mentally ill? Well, they actually say that most of these kids will either become murderers or mentally unstable. His philosophy on these Trojan is, it doesn't really much matter. These kids are all done anyway. Their lives are over no matter what. And Gorman House is a youth reformatory. It is in a nut house. It plays like one. It's certainly art directed like one, but it is not in and of itself about saying all these kids are crazy. They just happen to all be crazy when we meet the other villain, the ones that are going to bust out of this and hold our leather face and this nurse hostage for much of the picture. Mickey and Mallory? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Sure. What is his name? He has three different names. In this. I know! I was yes. writing down Isaac, then they call him Ike, and I could I was crossing things out. <laughs> Isaac and Ike are all the same person, FYI. 
that was confusing to me as well. I just took him as the bald-headed bad guy. And I know you say not everyone in here is crazy, but how come the nurse walks up and just goes, what meds are you on? (laughs) You know? It really does feel like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest Chainsaw Edition. Yeah, and again, because that's because they want that to feel oppressive. They want us to have sympathy for Bud and for Jackson. And if she's identifying them as good kids and Dr. Lang is strapping them to chairs and shocking them, we understand the conflict. We are, in essence, being fooled into liking Leatherface and hating his bully. Ike starts out at least sexually aggressive towards Lizzie, but intervenes. But he'll eventually bring Bud along when they have the breakout. It's weird. I realized here, again, going back to the Halloween, we're going to be made to sympathize with our killer. Whether or not I was right about Jackson or whether it was supposed to be Bud, here, it's a good person and we're going to supposedly see what makes a good person turn evil and I guess it's a road trip. Right. And I would say Halloween doesn't really do that. It shows us in great detail a bad kid being a bad kid and never shows us other than the break at the beginning, why he was. Here, there is some attempt at psychological transformation. It basically comes with the way that Jackson has a crush on Lizzie. And Lizzie is not only just our representation character of a normal person here, but she is going to be the guiding force that offers him a better life if he should choose it. He doesn't remember his family. Verna is here. She gets one more scene here early in the beginning. It's confusing to me that she's remarried. We never meet her husband. She shows up with a lawyer and says, I want to reclaim my kid. And Lang is like, yeah, we've renamed him and you're not going to meet him. So goodbye. And then that's it. She's kind of not a part of the story for the rest of it until the climax. That feels like a misuse of Lily Taylor, frankly. I think they only had Lily Taylor and Stephen Dorff for a short time. They're like, you mean we get to sightsee in Romania and only have to be on set for like a week? Let's do that. It is weird, though, that we never see her husband and that when we go back to them, she's still living in that same house. The guy running the institution is like, so you married into money. Did she marry into money and then instantly feed him to the pigs? Yeah, I think that she married in the money just for the money so she can get her kids back. Yeah. Black Widow. Honestly, yeah, it's not clear, yeah. But we've never known Verna before in any other movies, as far as I can remember. We've seen matrons that are scary, but not a Verna. There was a Verna in Texas Chainsaw 3D. Oh, there was. Yes, so what they're doing is tying that whole family tree with the cousin into this film. Well, good for them. Did not go back. Yeah. All right, so they are trying to build on those things. And again, I do feel... From time to time, they are trying to do callbacks. They are trying to do things that'll make us think about that original movie. And maybe that 3D movie. Can't work on me there. But I do catch some of the references to Toby Hooper. So there's a riot at the place, much out of Natural Born Killers. I was thinking that too. And then they escape the place and they have this wonderful opportunity to do a lot of killing in a horror movie. And try to set up suspense with the lights going out. They they do a lot of tropes of the... I thought of Halloween 2, the original Halloween 2 in the hospital, not the remake of Halloween 2. In the hospital. In the hospital. So they're trying some stuff here, but really it was just a big old prison ride to get them out. And you said before, Arnie, how could it be dragging in 10 minutes? This is where I felt it was dragging a bit. The scene went on a little too long with all the extra killing and that crazy girl who all of a sudden is there and we're supposed to follow her around and she came out of nowhere and then Ike's true colors show. She didn't come out of nowhere. Lily found her in the bathroom shoving a 
hairless mouse down someone's throat, right? I mean, we're introduced briefly to everyone here. Let's keep in mind this movie doesn't even hit 90 minutes with credits, so everything's going to be, shall we say, efficient? Yeah, I'm going to stand alone on this. Whatever criticisms I have, I didn't get bored. I thought it moved very, very quickly. You could say that maybe these setups were cliche, and I've seen it before. It's very fair, but I think they move through these cliches very quickly, so I didn't have a trouble with pacing at all. Once they got in the car, Stuart, I'm right there with you. But with the breakout, the riot, I got the point. Uh, let's move on. And that's the, this is what really kind of dragged for me. I'd say I want to spend more time here. I mean, if this is a movie to ask us how Leatherface came to be, we want to get to know Bud. Or we want to get to know Jackson. And we want to know what's making them tick and, and have that guessing game continue. We're to conclude it's Bud because Bud comes for Lang. He's the one that kills the head of the whole thing. He bashes his head through the window. So if he's a murderer, Clarice is a murderer too. So those two are killers, but I don't think anyone is thinking Clarice is Leatherface, right? <laughs> There's the real twist if <laughs> it went that be. way. <laughs> yeah, if they could pull that off, that would definitely have had all of us. But I've concluded by this point, I think I've seen all that I need to. Bud was tortured in an institution, taken away from his mother, has now been electroshocked. Yeah, of course he is going to be on the road to being Leatherface. And I enjoyed the prison riot bed. I mean, it is fun. My problem with it is it's so dark and we didn't spend much time getting to know these characters. We had Jackson talk about the doctor's torture room where they do electroconvulsive therapy and I wished we did spend more time in the hospital getting to know these people, getting to explore the Chamber of Terrors. So that way, when there's two nurses standing together during the breakout and one gets killed, I don't know who she is. And when there's all these inmates running around in the dark, I'm having trouble keeping track who was who. Was Ike the guy who attacked Lizzie earlier? It's so perfunctory. I'm really glad they leave so that at least I narrow down the main characters, but this prison breakout would have meant so much more if we spent five more minutes even in the hospital. Yeah, it feels like they're creating an epic here, and then either for budgetary reasons or because the material doesn't warrant it, they decide, ah, let's just cut it down and rush through it. But if you're telling us the epic story about how an innocent child that never would pick up the chainsaw to kill finally committed the act, I would want to see all the important moments. And I feel like we're skimming through them, surface level. And part of that is, too, because they have a guessing game. Because they don't want you to know which one is the real Leatherface, we can't dig and probe too deep. But Jackson is thrown along. He is taken hostage. He is not invited because he's a killer. I'm not sure exactly why Ike Isaac decides to take Bud, but he takes Lizzie and Jackson because he has a crush on Lizzie. Bud is very strange. I thought that because he is this hulking idiot that Isaac thought maybe he could use him as muscle, but then later he says he's a hostage too. We get that Isaac took Lizzie because he wants to screw her, which is much to Clarice's dissatisfaction, again replaying the hostage situation straight out of Natural Born Killers. And it was a criticism of Natural Born Killers that I have here. They ran out of ideas for the road. That movie kicks off in a fury and it grabs you by the throat and you're in its thrall for all of its bombastic overstatements. It is a very gripping film for the first half until you realize there's nowhere to go. And it's a similar problem here. 
By the same token, I like natural born killers, and so I like where this goes. I mean, I can see exactly what's going to happen when they go to a diner. <laughs> There's no shock. Well, yeah, and it's also Pulp Fiction there, too. I like the movie On the Road. We're getting a chance to focus on these guys. Now, here's a fun thing for me. When they were at the table, I was really getting into the reaction for Lizzie. I was like, why don't you just bolt for the door? Just go. And I was trying to, like, talk to her along with her and Jackson. If they both go together at that moment, they actually have a chance to run out. But inexplicably, Jackson kind of helps them along later on. Yeah, their first stop is at a clothesline on the side of the road. They change out, they get in, you know, things that are not the Gorman House uniform, and it allows them to be less conspicuous. What's said at that time, if one person runs, everyone dies. So there might be some compassion for Bud, because if they run, Bud was not allowed in the diner. That means they essentially committed murder on him. It's the only thing I can give you. But yes, I would run. I can tell you if I were in that situation, I would scream to the diner, hey, everyone, wrestle these people to the ground. They just <laughs> broke out of an institution. And here we get Jackson being like, I wish I could be someone else. Is the only insight into any possible multiple personality disorder projection he may have later on, deciding to try to be Lizzie putting on her face or something. But he's close to a breakdown. Yeah, pretty on the nose. I want to be normal. Okay, well, dramatize that. Don't have that be a line of dialogue. <laughs> and Mickey Mallory had a huge body count. Here, the plan is just to get to Mexico. They're not trying to kill anybody. They just want a car so that they can get to the Mexican border and maybe stop in Austin to see Ike's mother, who we actually will later admit he doesn't know if she's actually there. But it's a different MO, right? They don't want to make noise. They don't want the law enforcement to find them and chase after them. So you would want to, I think be far less loud. I mean, you don't want to murder a whole bunch of, you know, and leave eyewitnesses for them to tell Stephen Dorff. They shoot up the whole diner, so that's not their MO. They just they leave under fire. They know that someone is firing a pistol at them when they pull out. Yeah, I got all that. But they did still make a ruckus. They did rob everybody. They blew the waitress's head off. You're saying they wanted to be, you know, inconspicuous to get to Mexico. I would. I know you would, but they clearly didn't. They're insane. And I <laughs> I do love the giblets that the waitress's head going, you know, the way it's like a balloon popping and the blood comes up in a spurt. You know, if I'm watching a horror film like this, I want to see fun gore. And I think that delivered it. I chuckled. Stuart, you said the plan was to get to Mexico. And we hear Ike say we have a plan. We have to stay alive. They have to, they, those two have to stay alive. Why? Does Lizzie and Jackson need to stay alive? That is some part of the plan that we never hear about for Ike. Yeah, there's so much work to be done on all of these plans, including the screenplay. But <laughs> yeah, the problem for this movie is they have the ambition to tell us deeper insights into characters that they have not had created answers for. And yes, we don't know why these characters are even important to the formation of Leatherface. Would Bud or Jackson not be killers if they didn't take this road trip? I don't think that that's any impact on who they would have become. If either is Leatherface, these people aren't influencing them to become Leatherface. No, I wish there was more of that, especially when we find out Clarice is really fucked up. They're going to find this abandoned motorhome and decide to hole up in it. Its owner died of... A heart attack, old age, natural causes taking a little bit of the fun away. And Clarice and her boyfriend have sex with the corpse, which 
necrophilia. There's something that I don't know we've ever covered in now playing. <laughs> I guess a little bit with House of a Thousand Corpses. But she's all scarred up on the front. The least sexy sex scene I've seen in a long time. And this is the kind of stuff that could influence Jackson. It could push him towards that Leatherface thing. But he and the other two are just outstanding guard and doing nothing. I honestly think that he should be Ike. There's one too many people here. And that if we had a character who was prone to kill and had these rages, but at the same time really did love Lizzie and was thinking about a normal life that he could lead her and there was some kind of Stockholm Syndrome, that would be a more interesting conflict. But in fact, Jackson is just kind of taking a back seat, watching it all, waiting for the time he can slip out into the night. He's actually drinking moonshine with Lizzie in a house that's, when they enter it, reeks of a dead body, and yet they sit there anyway and don't smell it after that. Also, Arnie, I thought I saw a noose around the guy's neck. Maybe you did. The film gets very dark at times. Yeah, we discover the body because Lizzie slips in the bathroom and falls and accidentally kisses the corpse. Clarice makes fun of her for kissing the corpse and then decides to do it herself during a three-way with the corpse and Ike that, yeah, I just... So, so now the movie is becoming more about why they're crazy. They're not on our suspects list, right? Nobody's thinking that Ike is Leatherface. No, no. no. I, so this seems like a distraction, is I guess what I would like to underline here. If we were still playing the mystery game of who Leatherface is, and they were on the suspects list, maybe this would be compelling to me. But basically, they're just telling us that everyone in Texas is a gun-toting redneck fool. Well, that's just not that compelling. Callback time, by the way. They need to get the cops in it. And every now and then, Stephen Dorff shows up on the crime scene. He's got the camera this time. They do the whole screech thing like they did from the opening of the Toby Hooper movie when they're mm-hmm. photographing yeah. that body. And we hear that, that hinge sound as he's taking pictures of Lang hanging outside the window. That was kind of a fun one. I think they use it just right. This doesn't feel like callback overkill in this movie. They know when to reference and they do it well when they do. I wish there'd been, honestly, a couple of more. I mean, I know the sound of the camera very well, mostly because of our credits as anything, but it's very (laughs) memorable. I like that sound. But I wish this felt more like a Texas Chainsaw film. That's, I guess, what I'm complaining is I'm in an action film more than a horror film. It is feeling more like Oliver Stone than Toby Hooper. And I'm not not enjoying myself, but this also isn't giving me anything. I'm just sitting here and the movie is washing over me and I'm neither engaged nor repulsed. It's just there. Yeah, it's not deep enough for me to be asking deeper questions. And so that's the problem, is that if I wanted to get to more into the psychology and why and the tragedy of watching an innocent character fall, uh, there's a way to do that, but they're not really doing that. They've always telling us that it's Bud, it's Bud, it's Bud. The next kill is that Ike is going pissing by a tree. Bud takes him out, and in a callback, we've seen Leatherface drag his victims like this before. He's dragging Ike to a rock and then stomping on his head. That was the only moment of horror this whole film is seeing the teeth on the rock and thinking we were going to get a good close-up of a curb stomp. I mean, I go back to American History X as the best curb stomp in cinematic history. I'm wondering, will this come close? Now we're going to do a far cut away and not even get to see it. But I was really, my one moment of, 
oh boy, what are they going to do to him? Oh God, am I going to see that? And then, no. I like Ike's face in this too, his eyes bulging out of his head, wondering what's going to happen. I also thought that Bud's gait, the way he was walking, was very Leatherface too. They certainly were going for misdirection in this part. I actually did very much like that Bud took Ike out here. I think it was about time somebody did that. And also, I didn't mind that we didn't see the, the curb stomp and all its bloody glory. I got the point. I did like the morning after when he's laying on top of him. I thought that was wonderfully grotesque that he's laying on top of a bloody dead body. Yeah, he's been injured. It's been worth pointing out. He was the one that took a bullet at the barbecue restaurant and has been bleeding out really for a day now. He is on his way to dying and he is with a nurse. You would think Lizzie would have been able to do more for him, but they're just trying to get away. Lizzie's whole MO is that if we can get back to normal society, then everything will be fine. But she must know when she sees the cops roll in and blow Clarice away in cold blood that she can't trust these cops. She should know that. She should know better than what she does in the second half of this movie. Agreed. Why does Steven Dorff do it? Just because he's evil and this girl mockingly evoked Becky, his dead daughter? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. They show us that he has a trigger and his patience is gone and they shot the house up. Yeah, that whole scene played out exactly as it's supposed to play out. The guy shoots her in the head, which gets one more person out of the way for us to get to the big reveal of who Leatherface is. But I thought that was when we shoot her in the head, the face Dorff gave, it played fine. We've seen this scene again a lot of times, but... I thought Dorf played it okay for what he's doing. What I've said before in the past, I said he was a terrible actor in Blade. I think he's gotten better. He's found out what his movie persona is. He now knows that he plays these seedy, gruff characters. He had a really good turn in a Sofia Coppola movie nobody saw called Somewhere. And he's just learned how to be this sad, bitter father figure. He kind of reminds me a lot of Ethan Hawke, actually. I imagine they <laughs> get offered the same scripts all the time. But he is working within his range and doing what this movie needs him to do. I guess all I'm saying is I would like to know why the cops are this crazy. I would like to have seen more scenes with, maybe with him and Lily Taylor to really make this blood feud between families feel authentic and not just like random police brutality. I got what I needed from it. I got they killed his daughter. He wanted revenge. Ten years later, he's playing the exact same emotional beat. It doesn't feel like he's gotten any distance with it. But he's beating up all kids. I mean, he's not just persecuting Sawyers. This Clarice, she's not a Sawyer. I mean, there's no reason to attack her for what happened to Becky. No, but she's harboring a Sawyer. She's with the Sawyer. Oh, okay. And he had said that. He looked at the files. He knows that okay. Jeb is out here somewhere. So this group of kids is specifically bad. But it does seem like these specific Texas police round up a lot of kids for that Gorman house. Yeah. And they don't catch them because they do another replay. And we don't see who picks it out. Either it's Bud or it's Jackson who says, let's hide under the rotting calf while the police dogs come by. And we remember from the beginning of the movie that Jed liked to play under animal skin. We never see them even get in the animal. We just see them crawl out of it like some kind of weird bloody birthing. Yeah, that feels, well, they love that. I mean, watch Inside. But I also feel like 
that it brings Lizzie to look a whole lot like Sally from the first movie. It feels like a callback. I feel like we're getting to the end of the movie. If she's covered in blood, she's reminding me of where Sally was at the end of the movie trying to run and get away from Leatherface. But she's going to find a shower and clean clothes. That blood comes off pretty quick. I like the imagery of her clawing out her appalled face and covered in blood. But character-wise, and this is going to sound weak because of what we already watched for the past hour, but (laughs) it just seemed really out of character that she'd go along with this plan. Why on earth would she possibly say, oh, okay, let's three of us go in underneath this bloody corpse of a cow. It makes zero sense character-wise why she'd do that. And why would she flag down a police car when she saw the police kill Clarice? But she's the stupid one that puts everyone in danger, gets Bud killed, basically. Well, kind of. Bud gets himself killed. Defending her stupidity for having the cops calling in backup. Which goes back to Brock's point of why did she get in the cow? Because she is not an inmate on the run. She's been a hostage. Going to the cops seems like the natural thing immediately. If she was hiding from Ike and Clarice in that cow, we're all three people in one cow because that's got to be cramped. I mean, that's almost got to be a world record too. Yeah. Especially if one of them's Bud. He is, he, I think he needs a cow to himself. <laughs> right. Right. And also begging the question that is, I think it's asked, but never answered, Hal will eventually catch up with them. What does he want with her? Is he trying to create her in Becky's image? Because there's going to be a shootout. Yes. Bud goes down. That's where I realize, okay, it isn't Leatherface. He's dead, dead. Fool me. Jackson is our guy. And because he still looks like a human being with real emotions, he's still got a a fork in the road where he's got to decide whether he's a Sawyer or he's this Jackson independent of his murderous family. For me, it was a moment of validation. Yes, I'm right. You didn't fool me. Because if it had been Bud, then I'd have been the one being like, oh, I thought you were more clever than you are. But at this point, when Bud is killed, I have to wonder if most people realize anymore that they're watching a Texas Chainsaw prequel and that this should mean, wait, Leatherface died? Because nothing in that scene plays to me like everything you know is wrong. We've just killed Leatherface. The only people I know in the world that have watched this movie I'm talking to right now, but I don't know, because Marjorie fell asleep by this point, but I don't know if, listeners, let me know if you ever thought, wait, you killed Leatherface? Then how did the first movie happen? Because it just doesn't play like any other death. It doesn't feel more important than any death we've had so far. Right. And also, you know, Leatherface could have got shot in the head and... Survive. That's how he became unable to talk or uh, mongoloid. So that's maybe like he had brain damage from the bullet. You could actually argue that, but no, we see him clearly get shot through the head and not survive that. If they made him survive that and become a mongoloid after that, there's your answer. But they went a different direction in how Leatherface became mongoloid. To their credit, it's clever, and when it comes, for me, it was a shocking moment. It was what you depict, Arnie. It was, wow, I just... I didn't see that coming. I wasn't deeply invested in this movie, so I wasn't, like, on my feet applauding, but I was impressed. The movie was smarter than I suspected. And, of course, we're getting more closer to him becoming Leatherface in the ensuing car chase. Hal gets a shot in, and, yeah, like, his whole jaw is ripped up by the bullet. A single shot somehow turns him into the Joker from The Dark Knight. I just picture Jackson, do you want to know how I got these scars? (laughs) (laughs) It looks cool. 
cool, though. I mean, by cool, I mean it is very imposing. You could no longer feel your sweet, young, innocent Jackson at that point. You've been disfigured. It's weird, though, that if this movie is Leatherface Begins, continue my Nolan referencing here, that it happened so quick. It really happened in the span of a car ride that he went from Jackson to Leatherface. Oh, he got his face shot off halfway, and then he rolled over in a car, what, ten times? And both survived, which is miraculous. Seatbelts. Yeah, but his face was (laughs) hanging off. I mean, wouldn't you think that his, his face would just literally fall off the rest of the way? How does one bullet do both cheeks like that? I'm just through. We'll get Kevin Costner with a big old uh, light board and start explaining the magic bullet theory. Yeah, Yeah, sure. But this would be a stronger thing if they were the only ones on the road. That if it was Lizzie and Jackson and Bud, if he had had to take Lizzie hostage and that was showing his homicidal side, and yet he also had fallen in love with her, we would have seen things on this road that had led him to this point of, I can be one way or another. And instead, I feel like we spent time with a lot worse characters that kind of elongated this movie unnecessarily. Very quick rewrite here. We were told the ECT is the chamber of horrors and things. What if Lizzie saw that these kids were being maltreated in the hospital? We spent the entire first act in the hospital instead of just getting out of there pretty quickly. We see there's evil kids in the hospital. We see these kids are being mistreated. And Lizzie thinks it's a good idea to get these two out because they seem like good kids. And we start seeing, over time, Bud becoming more and more violent. Bud killing people were, of course, thinking Bud wasn't the good kid she thought he was just because he hung around with Jackson, really. And we think he's Leatherface. The three of them on the road, hunted by cops. She's not a hostage. She's a willing participant. She's the catalyst. And then it all goes to shit, and we see basically the rest of the movie we see when it's the three of them. I think that would be stronger characterization. It would make Lizzie culpable. She would have committed a sin for which she will pay the ultimate price. Mm -hmm. And we'd get a little bit more shock and awe instead of having this natural-born killer's because I like Clarice and Ike, but they are so useless. I don't like them. And yeah, get rid of them is my instinct. They just, they I found them completely annoying. And it turns out unnecessary. Hal is really the bad guy. And again, it's flipped. We now know Sawyer is Leatherface and he's taken prisoner. He's being strung up like Becky was in payback time. And Hal is keeping Lizzie around. Is that going to be his surrogate daughter again? What's going to play out there? She will ask him later, what were you going to do with me? And he says, I don't know. But they should have known. We should have some idea. The screenwriter should have had an answer for that because nobody knows. I agree with you. I still don't get why she's around here. I know Jackson had a crush on her, but she didn't have a crush on him, really. I mean, her job as a nurse kind of ended when the, the hospital went down, right? She was kidnapped. She has no obligation to these kids getting back where they needed to go. I don't understand why she's still alive in a horror movie. And if I were the Texas Ranger that wanted revenge on the man that killed my daughter, I would happily load her up in the ambulance and said, oh, Jed got away. And then I would go do my business. But I wouldn't keep her chained in the car. Or because he discovers that Jackson likes her, he kills her to torture Jackson. Ah. That would also be a better choice. Oh, we should, they should have called us. Why didn't they call us? I don't know. Because we don't like this franchise, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we can make this good, but I think what we're all saying here is we wish there was more meat on the bones, right? We wish there was more to chew and process on in this film. It's a pretty good setup, 
But as we've reached the climax, in my mind, rather quickly, too quickly, I don't know what we get out of it. Verna comes back through a police tip and pretty much easily overpowers Dorf. And now we can have the birthday party scene again. And this character is ready to kill him. Yeah, it's really strange that the perfect fix for his face is let's muzzle him. That's why he doesn't talk. He needs to keep his jaw together. I think even Verna might go to a hospital for this, but I guess they are crazy and there is incest because she's his aunt mom. But this ending, I see where it's going. It's checking the boxes that I feel need to be checked. Yeah, I mean, you got to do that. You got to build to where we know we're going to land. The best ones make that feel like tragedy, I would say. Yeah, I was thinking X-Men First Class when I watched this. Like, when I watched X-Men First Class, I was so shocked when they actually did paralyze Xavier. I didn't think they'd do that in the first prequel. Here, though, I have no sense of shock, no sense of I can't believe they did that. Yep, he needs some reason not to talk. Yep, he needs some reason to be disfigured. Yep, he needs to wear a skin. I did like that evolution, though. It's perhaps one of the more fleshed out relationships in any horror film that starts with he has a crush on Lizzie and ends with her wearing her skin. I actually liked that Lizzie was his first face because he does end up wearing female clothes later on and he does have a crush on her the whole time. So this way he gets to be with her. I think that really actually works very, very well. I don't understand why he walks like Leatherface when he walks down the hall with the chainsaws because he's in so much pain because the muzzle's too tight or just is his leg get injured too? Maybe it's all an homage to Bud. He decides to overeat to be like Bud, grow his hair like Bud. He was strung up there and he was dropped. I don't understand even what was in this pit that killed her. She kind of landed in something that was circular and I don't know, did it have blades or something? But he landed just as hard as she did. And so, yeah, I can believe that that might have screwed up your back or whatever. I'm going to give this actor a little bit of props. It's not easy to go from River Phoenix into Gunnar Hansen. And I think he does a pretty good job. I think he captured the sweetness of youth. And I think here at the end, walking with the chainsaw, wearing that mask, he captures the horror of the monster he's become. I don't ever feel the fright from him. I guess it's again because they're checking off the boxes. When I see after he kills Dorf and he's chasing after Lizzie, I know exactly where it's going to go, except deus ex bear trap i don't know why they didn't have Chekhov's bear trap set up in the beginning there's a lot yeah that's not set up but yes that's one that's more irritating (laughs) it's like all of a sudden oh we set bear traps too in texas where bears are so prevalent (laughs) yes but i know he's gonna cut off her head i like that it happens immediately though when she insults his mother you know I think there's just a standard dynamic between a girlfriend or wife and a mother, you know, the mother-in-law syndrome, and here he makes his choice. Remember from, I think it was the first Leatherface film, The Saw's Family, here he chooses family and the Saw and just cuts her head off right away. Yeah, and that's not just a tradition of this franchise, you know, Psycho did this. This is just, this is a part of Friday the 13th. There's just a long history of this conflict being played out in slasher films. I wish that I could draw connections between the horrible things we see in this movie influencing the psychology of what we know Leatherface to do later. But not enough for me. There's plenty of callbacks, but not the important ones. Does this movie ever make you feel sympathetic for Leatherface or anything? I mean, I walk away from this film like, 
yep, that's how Leatherface was made, I guess. But I never change my perspective i'm not going to then rewatch toby hooper's original and be like oh poor jeb i remember when he was at the hospital and now look at him putting that woman on the hook misa felt that way about other origins too i was thinking the same thing when you were talking there Arnie. i was thinking darth vader the whole time <laughs> oh come on when darth vader yells no at the end of return of the jedi doesn't that just take you right back to little annie this ending is better than that <laughs> no kidding. You know, it just occurred to me that didn't Superman have an issue with his mom in that last mo- Superman movie? And didn't uh, Star-Lord turn against his dad in the last Guardians movie because of his mother? This whole thing is as mothers and people killing other people or attacking them is, uh, I guess you would call a movie trope. Civil yes. War because oh, right, Cap Civil War. who killed Tony's mom. That's right. Yeah, it's it's all over the place. Yes. Well, we all have parents, and that is <laughs> it makes it a universal theme that many people can connect to. But there you go. You got to have enough tendons to connect those muscles to bone. Did they do that here? So, Brock Stewart, do you recommend Leatherface Dose? I, I mean, we already know <laughs> if you recommended Leatherface back from 1990. 19- yeah. I, I got to tell you guys, this one... And I can't believe I'm going to say this about a Leatherface movie. This one is full of missed opportunities. They had what I want to say is actually a pretty good idea of how to do an origin story for a character. I thought their take was, dare I say, clever. Their ideas were there. Everything is here to make this a worthwhile prequel that we really don't need. I mean, come on, we don't need to know. But of all the characters that we've done these retrospectives for, we know the least about Leatherface and what happened to this guy. And is this the definitive answer? I think we all can probably address that individually. I say no. I liked where they were going. I thank God they tried a plot. Thank God they tried something different. But Arnie's right. It didn't really feel like a Leatherface movie, but I can't tell you what a Leatherface movie really feels like. I know what a Jason movie feels like. I know what a Freddy movie feels like. I know what a Chucky movie feels like. I've seen, what, eight movies now in this franchise, and I still really don't know what makes Leatherface different, special, why I want to watch another one. And that first movie being the classic that it is, everything else pales in comparison. Even though I loved that Leatherface remake, the Texas Chainsaw remake, I still feel this one is just not worth your time. I want to give it full props to the ideas that just missed the boat on following up on them. I want to give full props to Lily Taylor and Stephen Dorff for doing everything they possibly could with their given. I thought she was quite good in this movie. I liked her. And the actor who played Jackson, he's British, and I didn't even know that until after I read it. Like, he did a pretty good job as well. So the acting is okay. The ideas are okay. The filmmaking is competent. It just didn't come together. It just was full of holes and problems. So I am not recommending this one. Although I have to say, I liked it more than I I thought I could. But by the time they get to the ending, I was ready for them to stop. It's a solid not recommend from me. Stuart. Yeah, I want to stress that it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And I think that's worth stressing hard. DirecTV exclusive sounds like the bottom of the barrel, right? We're going to finally get worse than the McConaughey one. And no, that is not the case. They get huge points from me for changing up the formula. This is not redneck torture porn. And I couldn't take another installment of redneck torture porn. Take that, Rob Zombie. They outsmarted you. They made a way into this world in which it moves and flows and goes to different places. And yeah, the acting is passable. It's good enough. Stephen Dorff has gotten better. I wish he was in it more. I do wish Lily Taylor and Stephen Dorff had more to do here. The production values. 
again, the French, they have a way of making violence look beautiful and horrific in a way that I don't feel like a lot of American films do. There's a stylishness to this movie that you can't see really in any of the other ones. But it is not good enough to recommend. I am going to stop short of actually giving the Green Arrow because, let's face it, it's young Hannibal. We didn't really want an origin to this. We didn't really need this story. They even feed people to pigs, which made me think Hannibal. Yeah. Very little of consequence is experienced by this road trip. It's great that we got to move, but again, if you're telling an origin story, the things that happen along the road create the man we see at the end of the road. That did not happen here with Jackson. So... It's clumsy. You know, we got one on-the-nose line of dialogue about saying, I wish I was normal. I wish I could just be on a date here in this diner. I like that that was what they were trying to dramatize. They get some points for getting close, but they cannot get a green arrow from me for this. But it lands smack in the middle for me in this series. I'm going to say, if I'm ranking them, the original, the remake, the remake prequel, and then this one. My feeling on this is how I now feel about Texas Chainsaw 3D. I had a certain response to Texas Chainsaw 3D when it came out of the theaters and recorded that weekend of release review. Now, several years later, I remember it as a one-line joke. Do your thing, cuz. But you ask me anything else about that movie. Why they're cousins, how she got in that house. I had to go back and revisit it when I found out this one was tied into it because I remembered nothing. And you know what? With this movie... Two days from now, by the time I'm editing this show and it's released, it's already <laughs> leaking out my ears. Yes. But here's the problem. It's not bad enough for me to be like, Red Arrow, nor is it good enough for me to be like, Green Arrow. It passed the time in a way that was non-offensive, but it was merely there. I'll say this much. It exceeded my every expectation for a DirecTV exclusive film that was theoretically made to follow up a quote-unquote hit, I quote Wikipedia, theatrical release. Given its shelf life <laughs> and given its release pattern, I expected Renee Zellweger level bad or honestly the prequel reboots level bad. And what I got was completely inoffensive. It didn't feel much like a horror film so much as an action film. But I guess where I come down is it did have some decent shots, some decent effects. And when I line it up next to its brethren, it's probably in the top half, though I'd actually have to rewatch all these movies to give them a proper ranking, or at least just listen to the last Texas Chainsaw we did, that reboot, and crib off my ranking from then. I'm going to just give it the mildest of green arrows. If you're looking for a horror film you haven't seen for Halloween, which I do every year, I always want to see some new films. This one is fine. <laughs> They're going to put that on the poster, <laughs> assuming that... It was going to be the needed posters at a movie theater. You know, I think they're on to something here. We're going to cover this realm again this Friday with you, Brock. I think that the 80s slasher genre that we knew growing up appearing in movie theaters and then going to video is now being reinvented as instantaneous streaming events. Cult of Chucky. Chucky is back with us this Friday. We covered both Chainsaw and Chucky 2013 in this exact same way. 
So I think this is the new model. I think that, yes, this would not be satisfying to tell people, go into a movie theater, pay the top ticket price and sit down. But Arnie, what you're saying is if it's on the television, you could do worse things than watch it. Yeah, you really could. If you're looking on iTunes and they have every Texas Chainsaw movie, this is in the top 50% of the ones you should watch. Yes, I agree with that. And it's not as bad as you think it is. And there are things here worth considering. But yeah, Green Arrow, I can't do. But I understand where you're coming from. It is not the travesty that it should have been. It benefits from the lowest of expectations. And while I don't think any of the acting is tremendous, I do think Dwarf kind of parodies himself in this one. I do think that the acting is fine. Yeah, is there any Renee Zellweger? Is there any Matthew McConaughey Vigo in this cast? I don't know. The main guy wasn't bad. But I actually thought the girl. It's like the first big thing she's done. She's like three credits to her name. I thought that she actually could be the next Renee Zellweger breakout. I saw something there that could actually work. I thought she was doing everything she possibly could with what she was given. Now, you're talking about Lizzie, not Clarice. Oh, absolutely, yes. Let's be very clear about that. <laughs> Here's the thing. This film isn't going to help her. Nobody's going <laughs> to see it. Yeah. That's right. So it can't hurt her either, right? Exactly. I mean, it's one of those that she'll be able to put on a resume to say, look, I actually made a movie, but nobody's going to see this one and remember her for it. I also don't see it becoming where she becomes the next day Zellweger and people start digging this up and putting her name big on the box to capitalize on it. You say this is the way the horror movies of the 80s are going. Maybe so. I do know that I'm looking forward to Cult of Chucky. I mean, Curse of Chucky in 2013 went that route. Now we have both Leatherface and Chucky doing it. Question is, is every movie going that route? I mean, sure. more and more, as we discussed at the very top of this podcast, theatrical experience becoming more reserved for special things. That's why the 3D gimmick helped held on for as long as it did. But will they make another Leatherface? I mean, can this movie be successful? The budget is unknown. The profits are unknown. Can they look at this and be like, yes, let's do that again? I think they're going to probably try to reboot this another five or six years because the character was dormant. I don't see this actually giving any sort of new lease on this series having new life. They're certainly not putting any dollars into promotion or advertising. You're absolutely right. But I'd much rather see a new reboot of Freddy than, than another one of these for a long, long time. I, don't, I just don't see what this character can do that would make us want to come back and see many more. They tried to reinvent the idea of what this character is here, but they ended up right where they started. Okay, but we need something more about this character to want to follow him through more movies, and they didn't give us that here or ever, I would argue. He is not the same kind of character that you would follow Michael Myers or see the new Jason. It's not the same kind of guy. So I don't know see how they're going to do that. I'd be inclined to say, no, this is the death of the series. But I remember something said to me when I ran a marathon. They are like, yeah, you'll run your second marathon when you forget the pain of your first one. It just needs a collective amnesia. As soon as everyone's forgotten this, which Already is, happened. Yes, by Arnie's <laughs> estimation, it'll be Tuesday. Then, yeah, then someone will go and say, all the remembers the first one, and we can say, here's the new version of that. And so it just takes forgetting. It will take a new generation. The next generation, not referencing the McConaughey movie, but the next generation 
of film goers will experience a new Leatherface, but it won't be tied to anything that happened after Toby Hooper's. The only way I'd see it is if Millennium Films keeps making it, because the fact that they decided to keep in continuity and drop some references to Texas Chainsaw 3D, when I would have said the exact same thing about that movie, is astounding. But, Brock... Thanks for coming back to now playing for this episode, and we'll talk to you again on Friday, two episodes in one week, as we review Cult of Chucky. And then next week, you and Jacob and Marjorie are going back to another storied horror franchise, Jigsaw. I know, I just absolutely love the amount of horror we're doing for Halloween. I've got my IMAX tickets for Thursday night. Yes, Saw is getting its first IMAX release. I've rewatched all the first films, and I am ready. And I certainly have that theme song, that little scores melody running through my head because they play it so much in the movie. And it's a welcome relief because also running through my head is Christopher Young's score from Hellraiser, which also starts next week. Yes, if you're a horror fan, we're covering them all. It feels like we're doing all the retrospectives. We're back in full gear. It is fun to do. It's the right time of year to re-experience this. Even though I didn't love coming back to Chainsaw, we had to come back to it. Yeah, it's better than a January release, right? You don't want to start your year this way. Exactly. You want to do a Halloween thing, and I'm looking forward to whenever they do eventually bring back Freddy and Jason to going back to those series as well, and I will come back for that. I don't know. To me, Texas Chainsaw is the perfect Thanksgiving movie. A time for family and carving meat. Yeah. yeah. Coming around the table and sharing a meal with your family. <laughs> Arguing who gets the giblets. <laughs> we'll rev up our chainsaws sometime in the future, perhaps. But until then, we'll talk to you soon. No, he, he's out there with a the chainsaw. No, he had a chainsaw. He was chasing me with a chainsaw. Thank you for listening to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre retrospective series from Now Playing. It's what the public wants! Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we cut into a new installment in this classic franchise. People may not remember what we say here tonight, but they sure as shit gonna remember what we do. You can find other now-playing retrospective series such as Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Terminator, Star Trek, and others at our website. Me and Bubba, my little brother, we listen to you every night. Go to nowplayingpodcast.com and click the archives link to find those series, as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar and Inception. We've got the means, we've got the machines. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films with other podcast listeners. First, I'm gonna kill you. It ain't no fucking biggie. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post new episodes, and the Now Playing hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Welcome! my world support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating if you enjoy now playing please support the show you can find a link to donate to the show using paypal on our homepage, or you can buy now playing t-shirts coffee mugs mouse pads and much more at the now playing cafe press store if you need anything just tweet <laughs> Now playing, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series is edited by Arnie. Boys, you never should have been doing that.
now playing credits announced by Brock. Right, all right, all right. Now playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Canon Films, Columbia Pictures, or Platinum Dunes. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the intellectual property of its copyright and trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. I'll speak plain. Saves time. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017. All rights reserved. Brazos. Brazos. Yippee-yay. I'm going to wait for this lawnmower, or whatever that is. It sounds like a spaceship. Yeah. It's the lawnmower, man. <laughs> a lot of sequels, the Die Hard sequels, the latest two, I really disliked those, and so thankfully they've stopped making them. Uh, the, the Death a new Wish... one's being made, actually. Oh, yeah. I don't they think they're done. They just announced it. <laughs> oh, did they? Well, wonderful for it's, us. It's got young, it's got old Bruce Willis reminiscing about a story with a recast young John McClane in his detective days. Oof. That just sounds terrible. Mm, sure does. <laughs> but yet it I can't be worse than them going to Chernobyl. No, and I'm on vacation. <laughs> no, you're not. Um, um, so anyway, uh, but this, this series... I find myself with a whole bunch of shit in my iTunes library, like life, that I'm never going to watch again, but it's always going to remind me I own. <laughs> Life, that thing about the paramecium that follows people around the space station. Yeah, with Ryan yeah. Reynolds. And Jake I saw Gyllenhaal. it yeah. a month ago, and I can't remember a thing. <laughs> I own it on iTunes. If you'd like to revisit, new. No. I was actually going to watch that last night. Now I'm not. I'm happy I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I I couldn't stay awake. It really is a uh, narcoleptic. But anyway, um... <laughs> it's tryptophan. But they go a step too far when they kill the daughter of Sheriff Hal Hartman, who I kept writing in my notes as Hal Holbrook. <laughs> <laughs> He's Mark Twain. <laughs> the one we'll know as the hitchhiker Nubbins with the big red mole on his face is an overweight kid here, and Leatherface is a thin kid here, which... Shut up. Not me. No, the fucking CD-ROM. <laughs> Arnie just talks to voices. I was like, he's talking to, he's someone talking, and he's telling himself to shut up. Fans may not know that, but Arnie's <laughs> batshit fucking crazy. Anyone who listens knows that. <laughs> <laughs> shut up, you personality. Let me Damn talk it. on the mic for once. Damn it. All right. And this is a reunion. One of her big indies was I Shot Andy Warhol. She played Valerie Solanas. She was the woman that did shoot Andy Warhol, and she palled around with a drag queen played by Brad Dourif, who appears oh. in the next mo segment. Brad Dourif is in this film? Really? Isn't you it? mean oh, Stephen Dourif? I always do that. <laughs> I'm like, Chucky's uh, in this? How did I miss that? <laughs> For the longest time, I believe they were father and son. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is dwarf, like on golf, not dwarf. Yeah, all right. Dwarf on golf? That's a movie I want to watch. <laughs> Him with a chainsaw. Anyway, backing yeah. it up. All right. Help the movie move on, because we've already seen Ike and Mallory, whatever her name is. Uh, uh, Clarice, the lambs are silent. Just mm. keep that in mind. 